Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on The Long Run is Richard A. Young. Rick is a professor of biology at MIT and a core member of the Whitehead Institute dating back to its founding in the 1980s. Rick's long and prolific research career has been dedicated to studying gene expression. He's won a number of awards and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Medicine. In the past decade, Rick's work has increasingly captured the interest of scientific entrepreneurs and venture capitalists seeking to translate these findings into new therapies. He's been involved in the formation and guidance of four companies in the greater Boston area. They are Ceros Pharmaceuticals, Camp 4 Therapeutics, Omega Therapeutics, and Dewpoint Therapeutics. In this discussion, we talked about Rick's journey in science and the confluence of factors that make this such an exciting time of possibility in biology and drug discovery. We walked through a brief description of each company and what it's aiming to accomplish. And (laughs) I will be in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near Rick Young's lab on January 23rd for Bridging the Gap. It's an event organized by Sufyan Abulhuda, a member of the Timmerman Traverse for Damon Running Cancer Research Foundation. I'm moderating a conversation there with Phil Sharp of MIT and Vicky Sato of Denali Therapeutics and Veer Biotechnology. An outstanding lineup of scientists and entrepreneurs are going to make this a can't-miss event. I'm going to include a link to register to get your tickets on TimmermanReport.com. Now, please join me and Rick Young on The Long Run. Rick Young, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Rick, I have to start with a joke here. People sometimes ask me, how do I select guests to go on this show? And what I really look for are world-leading biologists who also happen to be mountaineers. So there you go. I stood right in. <laughs> What's one of your favorite mountains that you've climbed over the years? Uh, Kenchenjunga. Um, it's my favorite for two reasons. It's one of the most beautiful mountains and one of the most isolated places on the earth. And also you can't actually climb to the summit because it's a goddess. Uh, so you can claim that you climbed it without getting to the top. Wow. Well, for those who don't know, that's the third highest mountain in the world in in the Himalayas. And it's um, really, really difficult. When did you do this? So uh, the truth is that I never got close to the 8,000 meter summit, uh, but it was back in uh, 1993, I believe. And I was a little bit younger. Yeah, well... um, that's uh, that's okay. It's not all about the summits, as you know. It's it's about being out there in uh, in nature in these amazing places. I'd love to go back. <laughs> well, maybe we'll do that someday. But hey, um, I want to ask you mostly today about your biology, your life's work, and how it's being translated for patients. Um, so before we get into all of that, can we just rewind back to the beginning? Where are you originally from? I'm from Pittsburgh, but I had the fortune of having a father that worked for a multinational corporation. And so we moved around a bit. And so I got to meet people from diverse cultures and interests. And I think that was a big benefit to me. Uh huh. And what kind of schools did you attend? Oh, I attended everything from. Schools in the suburbs of Pittsburgh to schools on the mountains of Switzerland to ultimately uh, Yale and Stanford before I found my way to MIT. Uh huh. Uh huh. How did you first get the spark for science? Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) Really? How? Well, in high school, I was super curious about what came to be known in genetics as traits. And I just remember listening to Jimi Hendrix play the guitar. I worked very hard to learn to play my guitar like him, but I just couldn't do it. And 
my introduction to genetics in high school gave me a way of thinking about this. And the more I learned about genetics, the more interesting it became. That guitar playing is almost from out of this world. <laughs> Very few yeah. people can equal it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you caught the bug for size. This would have been you know late sixties, early seventies. Um, right. How did you? Uh, you went to Indiana University. Uh, what yeah. drew you there? Well, there was a catalog. This is before internet time. So it's a catalog on Indiana University. I neglected to look at the date of the catalog, but it claimed that there were leaders in genetics there, including Salvador Loria, um, James Watson, and others. And so I figured that would be the place to go. Of course, they had left decades before, but I was fortunate nonetheless to work in laboratories at the leading edge of molecular genetics. And uh, the phage genetics that inspired me was still going on in Indiana. Uh-huh. So th th here we are, 1970s. This really is the, the beginning of the molecular biology age. Uh, what was it about that that captivated you and made you want to go spend your career here? Well, it, there were really kind of very simple experimental approaches that could be used to study how bacteriophage operated in cells. And it just captivated me that the models that people were telling me about how things work, when you designed an experiment, it, it would actually be consistent <laughs> with this. And I, I was just amazed then that you could go beyond what you knew uh, and ask a new question. It just boggled my mind that you could ask a question and overnight, uh, get an answer. And uh, I, I had been working for a guy named Tom Blumenthal, who just come out of the Watson Gilbert Labs at Harvard, where he'd been a postdoc. And so he inculcated in me this, this extreme interest in molecular genetics. So did you work in model organisms, like a C. elegans or something like that? Oh, I worked in a ton of model organisms after bacteriophage when I went to do a PhD in, uh, at Yale with Joan Stites. That was bacteria. And then subsequently when I went and did uh, a postdoc at Stanford with a little interim skiing postdoc in Switzerland, uh, I moved on to Baker's East. So my foundational stuff was all in these simple model organisms. Uh-huh. And so you like that, um, the ability to ask and answer questions. You didn't have to wait around for very long to, uh, to get the answer. Yeah. I also, you know, the folks I work with, Joan Stites and Ron Davis, they attracted people who were very good at developing both novel concepts and new techniques. So I learned that the two go hand in hand when advancing science. It was an important lesson in those labs that were studying model organisms. Uh, you know, this reminds me of the old Sidney Brenner quote about, you know, the one I'm talking about, progress in science depends on new techniques, new discoveries, and new ideas, probably in that order. And I had, this that is correct, and I had the pleasure of spending a summer in Sydney's lab at the LMB uh, during one of my postdocs. Now, I think I've seen, I've seen you refer to Joan Stites before as probably one of your most important mentors. What was it about her work and the kind of the, the way of doing science that, that she brought to the, to the work um, that made an impression on you? Well, there's, she believed that there was a special clarity that you had to have when you formulated a question and attempted to answer it. And in a world of great complexity, it just seemed quite beautiful to be able to, at the end of some struggle, to articulate a fundamental question about a problem and then attempt to go in and experimentally attract a hypothesis that emerged from it. And she was just very, very good at that. She also 
um, was married to Tom State, who in this department of molecular biophysics and biochemistry was an inspiration to me. Being able to bring physics and biology together was was important, I learned in that department, although I didn't understand how important that was until much later when I started Dewpoint. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a came much, much later. Um, now, you went to these great institutions, Yale and Stanford, for your PhD and your postdoc. I mean, it, it, looking back, it looks kind of like maybe you were just a golden boy and you sailed along. Did did you struggle at any moment? Were there moments of doubt where you really thought, I don't know if I can, I can do this? Uh, that wasn't until I got my faculty position at Whitehead Institute in 1984. Then I was pretty sure I was out of my league. Okay. Well, tell the story then of how did you end up going to the Whitehead Institute in 1984 as a uh, junior faculty, I guess in the, the early days then of, uh, of that institute? That's right. The, the, I started in September when the doors opened and these other eminent scientists, David Baltimore, Bob Lightenberg, Harvey Lodish, Rudolf Gainish, surrounded me physically and intellectually. And these people were leaders of their scientific fields. They were impressive scholars. They were exceptional mentors. And they produced this very interesting culture. <laughs> they pushed us to articulate key problems in our field and develop rigorous approaches to address those problems. And they rarely wasted time telling you what you were doing well. They instead focused entirely on questions that would help you lead your own field. And so we younger PIs were inspired by them and wanted to emulate them. But I was pretty sure that uh, I was an imposter in that environment. And someday they would figure that out. <laughs> well, so here would have been a juncture for sure where you get to set your own research agenda. You start your own lab. And the first thing you got to do really is figure out what are you going to work on and what are you not going to work on? And this is a really hard thing for a lot of scientists because you can end up going down dead ends or working on problems that might be interesting, but ultimately not that important. How did you think about what you wanted to really, what, what questions you wanted to attack long-term? That was pretty easy for me at the time because during my postdoc, I'd invented this recombinant DNA system that allowed you to clone genes using antibodies as probes of the protein products of those genes. This technology is obsolete now because genomes get sequenced. You just take advantage of the sequences to do further cloning. But at that time, that was a cutting edge technology and I deployed it to try and understand the enzyme that's at the center of making messenger RNA called RNA polymerase two. So I'd isolated all the genes for RNA polymerase two and my goal as this young budding geneticist was to use the power of genetics and mutation to go and explore the drinking buddies for RNA polymerase to find out who they worked with and gain insight then into how genes were controlled. So you were thinking about gene expression explicitly from pretty much the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I did have an interest in infectious diseases as well. And I had that interest because with that technology, I was informed by the World Health Organization that um, I could help them develop subunit vaccines for a wide array of diseases where folks who had an infection and developed antibodies against the pathogen could, those antibodies could be used to clone genes, and those genes could be used to make subunit vaccines. So I was really intrigued by this idea, and that led to a 10 or so year long uh, collaboration with WHO and the United Nations Development Program to see if we could stimulate development of, of new subunit vaccines for a, an array of what were then called tropical diseases. I remember going to David Baltimore, my boss, telling him that I was really excited about working on two different research programs, one in 
gene regulation and the other in infectious diseases. And after all, he he was leading multiple fields simultaneously. And I said, David, you know, is this all right with you? He said, of course it's all right. You just have to be the leader in both fields. <laughs> oh, just that. <laughs> um, okay, so this is the 1980s. Uh, we didn't have the full genome then, obviously. Uh, it was pretty time-consuming and laborious to sequence, clone a single gene, so at least some of the more complicated ones anyway. Um, a lot of discoveries were happening around oncogenes and tumor suppressors. Um, coming back to this question of like, the, the people were you know just identifying those genes and mutations that lead to disease of, of various kinds. But you you look, went a different route here with expression of genes. What was it that interested you? What made you think that that was a, a good avenue for you to pursue? Well, I'd had this long history, as you mentioned, in uh, studying model organisms and in asking really fundamental questions about those organisms. And as a geneticist for the time being, yeast continued to be my favorite organism. It was delivering lots of information. It was telling me about those drinking buddies of RNA polymerase, which turned out to be the key cofactors for the expression of all of our genes in, in human cells. And I could get at them quickly using yeast. But actually it was on a trip into the Himalayas with Rudolf Janisch in the 1990s, when Rudolf convinced me that it was time to move into mammalian biology. And he had gotten fascinated with uh, embryonic stem cells that ultimately moved to this new world of reprogramming cell states to induce pluripotent stem cells. And I saw that as an exciting new place within which to try to understand gene control in humans. So it really wasn't until about a decade or so after I'd been at MIT and at Whitehead that I decided to shift entirely out of yeast um, and move into mammalian cell systems. And that then uh, allowed me to begin thinking about the, the differences that human genetic variation were creating in gene expression and how that might be exploited uh, beyond the basic research space. So you, you had kind of parallel work here um, in gene control, morphed into mammalian systems. You had this infectious disease work as well. Um, would you say this was all pretty basic science as in like inquiry curiosity driven um and and leading to just more more deeper understanding of genetics and cell biology i would but i go a step further and say that the decade-long interest i had in trying to help the infectious disease community come up with solutions to uh, bacterial and path uh, other pathogenic vaccines um, I dropped that because I felt in the long run, understanding the fundamentals of mammalian cell biology was going to be the most productive thing I could do. And there was another major influence, probably the person who's influenced me the most in my career uh, was and, and is still now, Phil Sharp. Um, although Phil and I shared scientific interests, Turns out we bonded over teaching. We taught a graduate class on cell biology together for more than 30 years. We focused on the cutting edge of concepts and technologies. We had super talented students from all over the world who would ask wonderful questions at the edge of scientific knowledge. And both of us were in the room at the same time during those 30 years. So Phil and I spent a lot of time together discussing the most recent science and papers that have just come out and mysteries, mysteries associated with that science. We thought they were especially important and we engaged the people in our labs in those mysteries. And we'd also engage others who bring adjacent expertise to the table, chemists, physicists, 
computational experts. So I would say that what I had been coming to realize is that solving fundamental problems in cell biology might be the most important thing I could do with my time. Would you say Phil influenced you along the lines of being a more interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, big picture kind of thinker? Um, because I, well, by this point, you know, Phil was, um, you know, he's a little older, was well-established, had won the Nobel Prize by this point, very deep on RNA biology in his own domain, but um, also someone who has that um, that more 360 kind of perspective or was gaining it by then. There's no question about that. Among all the wonderful, brilliant people I know, Phil stands out in having a deep understanding of so many subjects in life. Uh, so it goes way beyond just the fundamentals of how a cell works to how are we going to attract the cancer problem successfully to what are the optimal ways to help other countries develop the Kendall squares of the world. So yes, he was quite inspirational and, and stimulating me to think way beyond my narrow little bubble in academia. Uh-huh. Well, that's one reason why he's fun to talk to an interview. <laughs> um, oh, okay, so when did the light bulb turn on for you that you might be able to work with people in industry? Well, I ran into uh, Jay Bradner at a meeting, and we discovered, and, and you know Jay as someone who was started as an oncologist at Dana-Farber, went to run as president of uh, NIBR, the Novartis Institute's uh, Biomedical Research, uh, just I guess of, as of last week, he's moving to Amgen to help lead their therapeutics discovery. He, it turned out that, that Jay and I had this shared interest in probably the most important oncogene, MYC. And we were both seeking ways to overcome what was more and still is that it's an impossible factor to drug yet a holy grail in, in much of cancer and we began to think about how we might create both within our academic labs a collaboration to do this but also attempt to deploy much more serious and professional help in the form of a commercial entity and that's what led to Ciro's. Was there a particular discovery that was the triggering event for the formation of Ciro's? Yeah, we were trying to figure out why it was that his now famous inhibitor, JQ1, uh, competitive inhibitor of BRD4, this chromatin protein, why it was that it was so selectively inhibiting the MYC oncogene in multiple myeloma cells. And in parallel to this effort, my lab had been trying to understand these gene regulatory elements called enhancers, which I think are the coolest elements in our genome. You know, they are the controlling elements that give cells their identity. There's most of human variation is occurring in these enhancer sequences, most of the variation that creates a propensity to develop disease. Uh, this variation is actually why your spatial recognition software in your phone works. The variation in genes for craniofacial structure um, is enabling that uh, face recognition to, to work. And importantly, cancer cells turn out to evolve these huge clusters of enhancers at driver oncogenes. We call them super enhancers. And it turned out there was a monstrous super enhancer that was driving MYC in these multiple myeloma cells. So we knew there was something very special about the clustering of enhancers, but we weren't sure what it meant. And we'd hope by starting a company to go and look at these large super enhancers in various 
tumor types, we might get clues to how to attack these tumors. And this would be different than just, say, directly trying to make drugs against MYC, which people had tried and not been successful with. This was a, another angle of attack, so to speak. The, and this was a very novel angle of attack on tumor cells using as clues their own genetics. They had evolved these large clusters of super enhancers in ways that never appeared in normal tissue. And our idea was, well, what if some genes we recognize, like genes for nuclear hormone receptors, uh, had evolved these super enhancers in certain cells, and it turned out they did in one form of AML. And if we could take a, a drug, an agonist against the retinoic acid receptor alpha, in this case, where we found that uh, a super enhancer at that gene in AML, uh, maybe that would be effective against that form of AML. We'd have a biomarker associated target to go after in that form of uh, acute myeloid leukemia. Uh-huh. So this is a super enhancer involved in gene expression. In this case, these, these genes get, they're overexpressing so much that, the, that it's leading to this uncontrolled cell division we know as acute myeloid leukemia. And, yep. and you're trying to tamp that down. Yep. Um, trying to tamp it down. And you know, a nice little wrinkle to this is that, that the genes that are regulated by this RAR alpha transcription factor are genes that, that stimulate differentiation of cells. And, and, and one way to attacking cancer cells to force it to differentiate into uh, the endpoint of its lineage. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So this was, um company was founded around 2013, is that right? Yes. So about 10 years ago. Um, and, and this was, as you said earlier, you'd been talking with other people who had their hands in industry, Phil Sharp, Jay Bradner, among others, um, these, these questions interested you about how taking the, the basic discovery of something like super enhancers and transcription factors and how they bind, how they work, and, and applying that toward developing of medicines? Very much so. And when I discussed this with Bill Sharp, he said, this is wonderful. I'd like to invest in this company and I'd be happy to join their board. Well, that's sort of helpful when it comes to uh, raising money or getting people to come work with you and, and stick it out for what amounts to, you know, a long time with a lot of uncertainty. Exactly. And to have Phil long for that ride and to get his advice was both a validating experience, but also it enabled us to gain that kind of quality advice from someone who'd seen a lot of the early world of uh, biotech through the lens of biogen. Mm -hmm. and, and you found this personally interesting? Like you didn't want to just say, hand the ball off to somebody else at a company and show up at a meeting once in a while. You, you actually wanted to um, engage with this? I had this epiphany on the board of Ceros. I came to realize that to be successful, any entity depends on the absolute brilliance of the non-scientists. It depends on collecting some of the smartest people in finance, in management, in legal, in regulatory. And each of those brilliant people had their own stories and they were fascinating people. And that really opened my eyes to the value of doing something like this. It just enriches your life. You learn best practices in other areas. You can bring them back to your science if you wish and train people to be better scientists with some of the best practices from other professions. 
So you didn't see this as the dark side <laughs> at all? Not at all. Not at all. If you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my coverage of the most interesting startups in biotech, my weekly front points column, and commentary from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And I will be in Cambridge, Massachusetts on January 23rd for Bridging the Gap. It's an event organized by Sufyan Abulhuda, a member of the Timmerman Traverse for Damon Running Cancer Research Foundation. I'm moderating a conversation about young scientists with Phil Sharp of MIT and Vicky Sato of Denali Therapeutics and Veer Biotechnology. An outstanding lineup of scientists and entrepreneurs are going to make this a can't-miss event, and it's for a good cause. You can get your tickets on TimmermanReport.com today. Okay, so Ciros, uh, it gets started 10 years ago, I think pretty early on, brought in Nancy Simonian uh, as CEO, experienced drug developer from Millennium and elsewhere. Um, how's it going? Uh, I'm glad you asked that question. Cirrus just reported high response rates, rapid onset of responses, and clinically meaningful durability in their phase two study of their drug Tamiveratine in combination with azacitidine in these RAR alpha biomarker AML patients. Uh, that's a complete response in all the patients that had that combo. And uh, we'll, it'll be about another year before we get a phase three readout in a much larger and more difficult cancer, uh, myodysplastic syndrome. And I'm very optimistic about that. But this is acute myeloid leukemia. This is a very difficult to treat malignancy. And you're saying these patients got all of them, 100% had complete response rates with this novel RAR alpha directed drug plus a standard chemo agent, azacitidine. That's correct. How many patients were in this study? Uh, I believe in this study, there are 27. Okay. Um, that's so that's really quite encouraging. They're now seeking to uh, confirm that in a phase three trial, as you say. So like, do, do you think this like, has the potential to become a novel cancer treatment like on the market, uh, assuming that the side effect profile is acceptable? I... Uh, I, I believe that's true. I mean, I certainly hope that's true. Um, all of the science is consistent with that prediction. Wow. Okay. So it only took 10 years and uh, many millions of dollars, and the story is still not over yet. Um, <laughs> but um, you, you've been able to witness this one evolve based on, coming back to what we talked about earlier, that this this basic understanding of gene expression. Yes. And you can just imagine for an academic how rewarding it is that work done by your young colleagues in your lab with your assistance led to a concept that gets deployed in a commercial setting to understand a clinical set of people who have this devastating disease. And now they have these responses to the drug. It's it's quite satisfying. Okay, so, but you weren't done there. You your science was continuing to make progress, asking and answering questions. Here we are in the mid 2010s. It looks like a very productive time. What was happening? Let, let's go back to your actual lab, in terms of. Maybe the tools, the techniques that you referenced earlier, tools and techniques were evolving and getting you know much faster, better, faster, cheaper, so to speak. 
How is that changing the way you were able to ask and answer questions about fundamental biology? Well, as you know, the advent of high-throughput sequencing um, really changed much about biology. And it was a real pleasure to have the opportunity to have my colleague Eric Lander so involved in that revolution. And Eric was generous with his colleagues. He gave us access to technology, gave us access to information. And what became clear is that by collecting large amounts of information about the genome, not just its sequence, but the set of RNA molecules that are being produced from it, some technology that we helped develop to understand how proteins interact with the genome, led us to really be able to create a synthesis of how DNA, RNA, and proteins give you the gene expression program that makes every cell what it is, it makes a neuron, a neuron, a cardiomyocyte, a cardiomyocyte. And one of the things that we learned through that process is that these enhancers that I've told you I'm so fascinated by, they make RNA. This is not your standard RNA. This is not uh, the mRNA that encodes protein. This is a non-coding RNA. And for 10 years, we didn't really understand what it did, if it did anything at all. But actually, in the last few years, what we've found out is that it's not only functional, and it's not only necessary for proper gene regulation, but it's a handle for the protein factors, we call transcription factors, that are binding the enhancer and causing regulation of a gene. So actually now we've come to understand that protein, RNA, and DNA all come together at these enhancers to give you a rheostat that controls the output of the gene. And that really is a fundamentally new understanding of how genes are regulated. This is really exciting. <laughs> um, did you run off and talk to all your colleagues at Whitehead, Phil Sharp, others about like, what do we, um, how, how, where can we go with this? I did. I did. But unfortunately, I also talked to uh, a good friend of mine, Amir Nishat at Polaris. And Amir said, well, we got to start a company. And uh, so we had a discussion about this and decided that we would start a company that came to be known as Camp 4. Uh, you know that name because the, the folks who climb uh, out in Yosemite have a place they call Camp 4, where they collect some of the most talented climbers on the earth. We, we thought about this as um, attempting to get to the summit of the problem of disease. Uh, but the, the science in there was to take advantage of these RNAs at enhancers and use an existing set of drugs called ASOs uh, that had been advanced into the clinic by many others and see if we could, could create a programmable drug for diseases where the gene output was compromised. So we have lots of those diseases. We have hundreds of what are called haploinsufficiencies, where in essence, we only have half as much gene product as we need. But what Camphor has figured out is how to use ASOs reproducibly to uh, attach to a specific portion of the enhancer RNAs that dial up their expression about twofold, about exactly where we need it, um, in those types of diseases. Now, an ASO, for those not familiar, antisense oligonucleotide. So this is a single-strand um, RNA molecule that can bind very precisely with um, a specific region of genetic code that you want to bind with. And as you say, get that effect of dialing up the production of a protein that is insufficient, and it's it's so insufficient that it leads to disease. This is this is like the opposite. It's kind of the flip side of the way RNA molecules have been developed in the past, 
which have generally been used to silence, shut down, inhibit the production of disease proteins. Is that right? That's exactly right. And it surprised us enormously, but of course, delighted us as well. And my understanding that CAMP4 has done this experiment on 30 different disease genes. And in 29 of those, they find a site in the enhancer RNA that upregulates the gene approximately twofold. Wow. And where are they starting like, with their first application? Uh, because if you can address 29 different diseases, I mean, that's uh, a lot of opportunity. You can't do them all at once. That's right. And they've elected to first go into urea cycle disorders. There's a rate-limiting enzyme in the metabolic pathways that can be upregulated in preclinical studies to alleviate these disorders. Uh, it's called uh, TPS1. And so actually uh, this week, uh, CAMP4 has gotten permission to initiate clinical trials. So they're a clinical stage company for uh, urea cycle disorders. Okay. Okay. So this is, you know, a, a few years behind where um, the team at Ceros is. Now, Ceros, by the way, they're developing small molecule chemicals, correct? That is correct. Okay. So at CAMP4, this is different with antisense oligonucleotides aimed at different um, stretches of genetic code. Um, but that's not all. <laughs> You've got a couple other companies and probably a couple more that I don't even know about yet or that you can't talk about. But um, what are what are a couple of other companies that have emerged from this increasingly rich vein of gene expression biology? Well, one is Omega. Um, it's a flagship company, and the other is Dewpoint, uh, which was uh, again inspired by uh, Phil Sharp and uh, Amir Nashad. So Omega first. Omega is in, is using LNP mRNA to uh, bring a DNA methyl transferase to a site beside the MYC promoter that, when methylated, turns off that gene. Now, you will know that in about half of human malignancies, the uh, oncogene CMYC is overexpressed. And tumors become addicted to these very high levels of CMYC. So if you can turn that down acutely, two or three or fourfold, uh, it'll kill the tumor. And as we noted earlier, MEC has been a, a very challenging target for conventional small molecule therapeutic development. But the idea we had takes advantage of an observation we made that when enhancers come to the MIC promoter, they have to dock with a specific site. And that site is the same site in all cancers that are driven by MIC. And that site is very sensitive to DNA methylation. So if you can target a DNA methyl transferase to that site, you have the potential to shut down that gene. And all our preclinical studies indicated that that, that is what would happen. Uh, so Nubara Fan was inspired to, by that observation to, to get me involved in the formation of Omega. And we have um, an LNP mRNA that expresses a targeting zinc factor, zinc finger protein fused to a DNA methyl transferase to that MIC promoter in hepatic carcinoma, and it's in, in phase one. Now, this is borrowing from some progress that has been happening across the street uh, from you with LNPs, lipid nanoparticle encapsulated mRNA. Now, the whole world knows about mRNA and what that can do for vaccines. It can provide that very specific code for producing a given protein, and you can put that in the lipid nanoparticle uh, to deliver it. Um, pretty effectively inside cells. But so you can you can borrow on some of those learnings uh, from adjacent fields and apply them to this specific problem, which is implicated in many, many types of cancers, that being the overexpression of CMIC. 
That's correct. And as you know, there's been a pretty large patient population that's seen these LNP mRNAs in a vaccine context. So the FDA has a good understanding of the of the potential liabilities, uh, toxicities of such a drug. And we can take advantage of that when we're designing clinical trials for uh, hepatic carcinoma and hopefully in the future, additional cancers and other tissues. But this is really important, that delivery piece uh, that others have worked so hard on for so long with genetic medicines of this ilk, you know, mRNA or antisense oligonucleotides that you referred to earlier. I mean, that's not really your domain expertise, but other people have have made progress there, and that's going to help benefit um, your work. That's absolutely true. And to the extent that we break through the challenges associated with delivery to various tissues, um, then companies like Omega have a, a much broader landscape in, in which to work. Okay, so that one is still preclinical. I do want to ask you about Dewpoint because this one, um, this is a, a different area. Of, well, I think there's a, another fundamental insight here with biomolecular condensates. Maybe can you just start with like what those are and, and what was the kind of the aha moment uh, with biomolecular condensates and what they do? You know, this is the biggest revolution in cell biology since recombinant DNA. It is the realization that's come about really since about 2009 that a property of living matter is that uh, the polymers and DNA, RNA, and protein are polymers, is that they will tend to do what we call self-associate. They will, much like do on a leaf early on a chilly morning is an assembly of water molecules that have condensed on that leaf surface. The same thing happens in cells. And remarkably, what's happening with all the functions of cells, whether it's signaling or transcription or DNA damage repair, or even just conveying at the edge of a neuron the impulses that give you cognition, that give you the ability to understand what I'm saying. These are all droplets that form within the cell and compartmentalize functions. And they do this without forming a membrane. And this revolutionary new understanding is causing us to rethink how much of cell biology works. So we have a rich history of understanding how the proteins that form structured features, how they work. And in fact, AlphaFold has been the latest AI revolution in understanding how those portions of proteins fold in order to do their work. But there's a dirty little secret in protein and cell biology, and that is about a third of the proteins, about a third of the amino acids on all our proteins are cut off in order to make those pretty pictures, in order to get crystals, in order to solve those structures. And that additional third of all of our proteins is retained by evolution because it has function. And part of its function is to facilitate the assembly of these molecular machines in larger complexes that until we started using really cutting edge super resolution microscopy, we didn't see. Now with that kind of new technology, we can see that all these cellular functions have this feature that they form these little droplets that compartmentalizes all of the components necessary to say, express a gene or to repair a piece of DNA or to signal to the cell that there's been a change in the environment. And that realization has led us to rethink what are what underpins a variety of diseases where there are mutations in those segments of proteins that weren't solved by alpha fold, and to address what happens in diseases where there's overexpression of proteins. I'll just give you one example. In colorectal cancer and some forms of pancreatic cancer, 
you overexpress a signaling molecule called beta-catenin. That overexpression contributes to the oncogenic properties of those cells. And it's long been thought if you could just drug beta-catenin, then you'd have an important new solution for these devastating cancers. But the problem is that beta-catenin is mostly this disordered thing. It doesn't fit nicely into a structure that makes it amenable to developing small molecule drugs, much like the story with Mick. But instead, we know that there is a property of beta-catenin that we can now drug, and that is the formation of these little dew droplets and cells that are necessary for its oncogenic signaling. And what DuPoint has done is it's industrialized the, the view of these small little droplets, these condensates, doing lots of different functions in cells. And they can understand now what drugs do to the behaviors of these condensates. And that's allowed them in their lead program to get to the point where they can they can take a, a beta-catenin dupe droplet and move it to a place in the cell where it doesn't have any function, where it can no longer stimulate oncogenic activities. So they have a tool compound. It's in lead op. It moves beta-catenin to a non-functional space. It's orally available. It, uh, in preclinical uh, orthotopic models, looks amazing. So that's just one of many programs that they've developed that make me really excited because this really is a very new kind of biochemistry and biophysics where the worlds of biology, chemistry, physics, and AI are emerging. This is absolutely fascinating. I, I almost don't know where to begin asking you to follow up on this because um, water... These reactions with water in the cell, they've been happening all along, across all species. It's just a natural phenomenon that we couldn't really see before. It, because, because why? It happens so quickly? Or, or what, um, what happened with the technologies that enabled us to see something that we couldn't see before? It basically, the super-resolution microscopy coupled with you know, Nobel-winning innovations like the addition of green fluorescent protein to uh, protein molecules enabled us to see fluorescence in these scales that were beyond the normal properties of light. And so now we can use these tools. We can, uh, Dewpoint has this very cute um, uh, painting technology that they can use to light up condensates that are involved in lots of different functions in the cell. So when they see a disease mutation that's reflected in the behavior of all of these little dewdrops of different colors, or when disease cells see a drug, that the, the behavior of all these little dewdrops is altered and they can figure out uh, the underlying mechanism. So it's, it's really a, a, a brave new world where I think lots of new therapeutics, therapeutic concepts, and, and therapeutic modalities will find a home. Now, you said there, this is the biggest thing to happen in cell biology since recombinant DNA. That is quite a statement. Um, how, um, and, and now, some of this is obviously happening in DuPoint itself for the purpose of its own drug discovery programs, but... Um, is uh, are the technologies are the techniques being widely distributed across um, all all of academic biology? Because I would imagine a lot of people would like to be able to look at these interactions themselves. They are indeed. I think, <clears throat> unlike recombinant DNA, where the tools were you'd simply mail them to your friend or stop by and pick up. Uh, a recombinant vector and some of the enzymes you needed to construct your recombinant. In this case, the tools can be quite expensive. So these super resolution microscopes are expensive. Um, but the, the ability to produce GFP fusions and other types of tools with, uh, with various proteins, put them in cells, 
that's pretty standard stuff. I think um, what's emerging here that just blows my mind is that when these little droplets form in cells, for example, to transcribe a specific gene, they are very dynamic and transient. So it's useful to be able to visualize them in real time and expect that they're happening in short time frames. For example, a condensate that'll transcribe a gene may form and dissolve in a 10 second time frame. But I think what's remarkable here is that we're coming to realize that that droplet, that condensate, has a slightly different internal chemistry than a different droplet that's doing splicing or a different droplet that's doing signaling. And what that tells us is that the solvation properties of those different compartments differ. And so when you, when you put an FDA-approved drug or some new modality that you're developing on these cells, that drug doesn't distribute itself evenly through the cell. Those drugs tend to go to the condensates that optimally solvate them. So for many drugs that are FDA approved, they happen to go to the right condensate, the right compartment where their target lives and concentrate there. And that would give you a good therapeutic index. There are other drugs, many of which are quite toxic, that go to the wrong compartments because they're optimally solvated there, but that's not where their target lies. So I, I think this is another reason that it's going to revolutionize the process of small molecule drug discovery. We're going to better understand some of the mechanisms of how drugs work or why they don't. And then this could go way beyond DuPont's own programs. That is my thinking as well. Huh. Well, gosh, you know, Rick, there is so much happening here. I know that you are, um, I think you're about to turn 70. Is that right? Yeah, but I'd like to think otherwise. <laughs> How do you feel biologically? <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> well, I feel about 35 biologically until I look in the mirror each morning and wonder who that person is. <laughs> but seriously, you've been at the Whitehead now. It'll be it's close to 40 years. Um, you've had this long and productive career. Um, and some you know, you might even say increasingly productive in the last, say, 10 years. Um, what do you think explains that? Why, um, why is this such a productive time for you in your life? I think it goes back to what I was saying about the epiphany I had when I first joined the Ciro's Board of Directors, that there are people in all walks of life who have something to offer. And by collecting friends in very diverse areas, professionally and otherwise, you can create a very, very rich environment for yourself. But it's also this other thing that we started with. I still love mountaineering. I still love doing open ocean kayaking. There's just nothing like the freedom of being out in the wild. And I'm so envious of you and your next trip, which I understand will be in Africa, one of my favorite places on earth. I wish you the best and congratulations for, for doing such a good job helping raise funds for cancer patients. Well, thank you. It's um, a real privilege to be able to, uh, to lead and organize these programs for cancer research and fighting poverty and, and other things too. Um, but, you know, so those are, I, I think, personal um, explanations for what gets you excited and keeps you vigorous uh, in, in the lab. But what about the kind of the macro environment? And we've talked a bit about this already, but why is now such an exciting time in biology for younger people coming up? Well, when I talk to academics about subjects like condensates and new ways of thinking about cell biology, what I find is that the youngest scientists become most excited because they realize that there's still frontiers that are pretty substantial, 
frontiers that they themselves can go and attack using tools from physics, chemistry, biology, artificial intelligence, that maybe their mentors cannot. After all, those of us who are in my age group did not think that it would be necessary to have a good understanding of deep learning and transformer large language models in order to make progress in understanding cell biology. But that is true now. And so I think there hasn't been a better time for young people interested in science where there's a convergence of so many useful sciences in order to understand many of the mysteries of human biology. Yeah, it is that uh, the development in parallel of these technologies, the techniques to use them, the large data sets being generated, the ability to analyze them with AI and, and other tools. Um, it's really, it, well, and then it's just development of people, <laughs> people who have been around and been able to pass along their knowledge, um, like you and Phil and others. Um, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty exciting time. Rick Young, thank you so much to, for joining me on The Long Run. Look, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.